This is Science Moab, a show exploring science happening around Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about a sea that existed over 65 million years ago across present-day North America. I look at large outcrops and try to understand the evolution of the Earth and, and evolution of depositional environments and depositional systems over time. That's Peter Flagg, sedimentologist from the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin. A key focus of Pete's research is the Cretaceous Western Interior Seaway of North America, and that's what we're talking about with him today. This was a big sea that split what we know as North America basically in half, connecting the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to the Arctic Ocean. And the western edge of this sea touches what we now know as Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado, parts of of the Colorado Plateau. And we're talking 130 to about 70 million years ago that this existed. So it, it actually, in some form or the other, it was around for almost 60 million years, which is a long time. And so... I wanted to start by having you just describe this seaway. Sure. It's an empiric seaway. So it's a seaway that, you know, cut through a continent and then ultimately disappeared. It was deep, but not as deep as, say, the continental shelf. It didn't really have what we know as a shelf slope break and sort of an abyss, but it was, you know, hundreds of meters deep. And there were sediments that were coming off of the severe orogeny. It, it developed because of the severe orogeny and, and the loading of the lithosphere by, by the severe orogenic belt, which then buckled the lithosphere and created this big interior basin along the continent. And then it filled up with water. These river systems coming off of the severe orogeny and prograding from the west to the east across this relatively short coastal plain and into this interior seaway. You have river deposits and, and associated floodplain deposits, and then these rivers ultimately enter the seaway as deltas and shorelines along this pretty complex coastline that ran you know, all across North America. And what's really interesting is the seaway divided Laramidia from Appalachia and not being a paleontologist, but working with a number of paleontologists, that's very interesting because you separated these different flora and, and fauna by the seaway. And so you have development of, of different flora and fauna on each side of the seaway. And I think that's very interesting. And that's something that we don't often think about as geologists, but paleontologists think about a lot about how the seaway actually affected the evolution of plants and animals on either side that were no longer connected and that ultimately would be connected again once the seaway disappeared. It's fascinating and it's, and the exposures that were ultimately uplifted during the Laramide orogeny, a later orogeny, uplifted those sediments. Uh, created these beautiful outcrops, uh, such as those in the San Rafael Swell and along the Book Cliffs and in other areas, where we can look at all these these wonderful deposits from the Cretaceous Western Tracer. And just to clarify, when you're when you're referring to the severe orogeny, you're talking about mountains on basically the west side of the seaway, correct? That's right. So the severe orogeny developed on the western side 
of the seaway, pre-seaway. That's correct. So most of what we see in sort of the Moab area and the Book Cliffs, those are all coming off of the severe erogeny, which was to the west of the seaway, prograding to the east into the seaway. You mentioned that it's an empiric seaway, which means it it has periods of dry versus wet. In other words, the seas retreated and then prograded back and forth. So I suppose you're getting a mix of different rock types based on how much of water was around at, 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 during the time. I mean, how variable was the, the sea level in the seaway? It's a greenhouse time period in Earth's history. So you'd have these tens to potentially hundreds of meters of sea level fluctuation. Think of the shorelines moving towards the center of the seaway as, as the seaway shrinks and, and then backing up towards the outskirts of the seaway as the seaway rises. And, and so that actually creates a lot of different depositional environments that are all stacked one on top of another. So for example, you might start out with a very wide seaway and in one location, let's just pick Utah, for example, you might have deltas and the beach and even offshore deposits, shore faces, marine animals, marine critters. And then as the seaway shrinks, those shorelines, western side of the shorelines, those shorelines move to the east. And then you start to prograde, for example, coastal plains or delta plains over the top of those ancient shore faces and deltas. So now you have trees and, and swamps, peat swamps and river systems and soils and all the dinosaurs that lived on those coastal plains and plants and animals that lived on those coastal plains. And then as the, the seaway again expanded, then you return to more marine conditions. So it's highly variable. And the discharge of the river systems is variable too. So in some places, as you get closer to the mountain belt, you might have more sort of conglomeratic, very uh, coarse grain systems. And as you move away from the mountain belt, you would have more finer grain systems until you get to the, the big shales like the Manco Shale that you see in, in the deeper part of the basins. It's highly variable, both in time and in space. And, and you could read that right in the rock record. And I mean, what are some of these rock layers? You mentioned the mangoes and the book list, but what, what stratigraphy does, does the seaway encompass? And I, I know it's variable throughout, but let's, let's concentrate on, say, the Utah area. What, what do we see? There's a very popular area for geologists to visit near Helper, Utah, that exposes a a really cool delta called the Panther Tongue Delta. And that's the Panther Tongue of the Star Point Formation. It's a beautiful, what most people consider to be a river-dominated delta. As you move up, the bulk of the book cliffs is made up of the Blackhawk Formation. And folks might have heard of, of the members of the Blackhawk Formation, like the Spring Canyon, Aberdeen, Kenilworth, Sunnyside, Grassy Desert members. And these are all big delta complexes and, and shorelines and shore faces that prograde and retrograde into and, and back out of the seaway. And, and that's overlain by the Castle Gate, which is a big sort of conglomeratic unit that comes out over the top of the Blackhawk Formation. And again, you can see that at the Castle Gate, uh, just north of Helper. And then above that, you have the Sago. That's a classic tidal dominated deltaic complex coastal 
tidal system. And then you have the Neslin, which sits above that. And that's some amazing, very complex tidal coastal deposits, really interesting river systems. There's dinosaur footprints. And those are real commonly visited deposits of the Cretaceous Western Interior Seaway in and around sort of Moab, Book Cliffs, Green River, Grand Junction area. The sea at one of its deepest levels is what is recorded in the Menka shales. Yeah, that's correct. You know, think of the Mississippi Delta. You know, if you were to walk from the Mississippi Delta on the actual sub-aerial part of the Delta and you started walking out into the Gulf of Mexico, you would be in the river systems, the distributary mouth bars, and then you'd walk to the you know, more proximal delta front to the distalmost delta front. And eventually you would be into hundreds of meters of water. When you get out into that hundred meters of water, you've lost all of your coarser grain sediments. You know, most of your sands are gone and now you're just depositing silts and muds. And so the Mancos is that deeper part of the system where you are past all of your real coarse grain sediment input. And you're really just depositing those very fine silts and muds in the deepest, deepest part of the basin. And that that's a large, large part of the basin, right? And it records an awful lot of time. Yeah, and so the whole rock record from the seaway not only contains, as we're talking about, a lot of dinosaur fossils, but numerous reservoirs of hydrocarbons and coal deposits. So it has a has a very rich legacy all the way up from Texas, all the way up to Alberta. These and Alaska, actually. Alaska. And so these are yeah. hydrocarbon reservoirs. What are some of these economic layers? And what was it about the seaway that was conducted to have these types of uh, deposits? It has an academic. The Cretaceous Western Terrace Seaway is very interesting because it's so diverse. There was so much going on along these shorelines, right? But from a from applied point of view, you're absolutely right. You know, the oil and gas industry is very interested in the deposits of the of the Cretaceous Western Interior Seaway, and there, I think there's really two reasons for that. One is that the outcrops are amazing, and you know, when you think about oil and gas reservoirs, for example, in Texas or in the subsurface of New Mexico and Utah and Colorado and up in even Canada and certainly in Alaska, when folks drill these areas, they have sort of a a Swiss cheese view of what's going on in the subsurface. You know, the wells might be, you know, widely spaced and it's very expensive to drill core and bring core up in some of the wells. So they just might have wireline well logs, for example. And what the Book Cliffs provides us are analogs, outcrop analogs, laterally extensive outcrop analogs for these subsurface reservoirs. It's not that they are necessarily reservoirs, they can be, but they represent what we can't see in the subsurface. So if if we know that these are deposits of a wave dominated deltaic system or a tide dominated delta or a distal coastal plain fluvial system, we think we have those types of deposits in the subsurface, we can go to the book cliffs and we can look at these deposits and follow them laterally and understand how things are connected. What might be a good reservoir? 
How connected is it over long distances? What might be a barrier, a baffle to flow? What might be a good source rock? What could be a good seal? The book cliffs provide us with that uh, continuous exposure over long distances. The other thing is that they can present stratigraphic traps and not just structural traps. So you don't necessarily need faults in these types of systems where you have deltas that pinch out in, so sands that pinch out into muds, for example, tend to, to be potential stratigraphic traps. So they, they make good reservoirs because of the juxtaposition of things that act as source rocks and seals, and then reservoirs that are stuck right in the middle of those. Right, and one particular sand may not be hugely extensive, they are stacked on top of each other. So when you can hit several of these in a single wellbore, say. So the, the, the type of deposits lend themselves to economic success in a lot of ways. Exactly. Lots and lots of you know time involved here and lots of stacked sand bodies that are interbedded with these mudstones. That's correct. You had mentioned earlier about how the flora and fauna across the seaway were detached during for almost 40 to 60 million years, say, and so they evolve differently. I mean, what about rock layers? I'm imagining they don't necessarily extend across from east to west across this uh, seaway either. Or no, <laughs> no, well, absolutely not. There's, and that's exactly right. And, there, and there's no reason that they should. So, but at the same time, there can be some, you know, some things that are, are similar. So you, you've got, we mentioned the, the Mancos shale or, or other, other shales that, that are like the Mancos, okay, uh, that are these deep water shales. So you've got, you've got your western edge of the seaway, then you've, you've got your deep part of the seaway where these, these deeper black shales are being deposited. Then you've got the eastern side of the seaway. To me, it's really fun. It's fun to look at something like deposits of the Cretaceous Western Interior Seaway all the way from Texas through Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, you know, and then on up, dabble a little bit in Canada and then really focus on Alaska as well. So because, you know, there are similar environments, but yet things function very differently depending upon your sediment sources, your the size of the mountains and, and subsidence, you know, there's tectonics involved here too. The, yeah. the lithosphere is kind of going up and down here based on loading and unloading from the orogenic belt. So there's a lot of complicated things involved with the system. The Western Interior Seaway has been a part of your research for a long time. I mean, what, what aspects of the seaway are you looking at and uh, where you've mentioned Alaska, but where are you studying or have you studied and where are you focusing now? Well, I try to get to the book cliffs as much as I possibly can. And I'm really interested in what the controls are behind what's going on with the deposits. It's very interesting to look at deposits and say, okay, here's how things are changing. But, but we, what we're really interested in why why these deposits have the characteristics that they do. And, and, and so what are the characteristics? And the characteristics of these systems then speak to their broader geometries, potential broad geometries and predictability of, of the geometries of these, you know, sand bodies, geobodies in the subsurface. Again, where are the shales? 
where are the sands? For example, to work in Alaska, a lot of these systems in Alaska dip into the subsurface and they are very active oil and gas reservoirs in the subsurface. So I'm really interested in looking at the outcrops of these systems and really understanding how these characteristics change and what's driving the changes in these characteristics. Tectonics, sea level fluctuations, these fluvial tidal wave controls on you know, the way that sand moves around and mud is deposited in these systems to try and then predict, okay, well, if these things dip into the subsurface, are we going to see the same things? Are we going from a more proximal position to a more distal position along a shoreline? And should we then, you know, change our predictions about, about what's actually happening? So I'm really, really interested in that. And then I'm also very interested in how these deposits preserve life in all different forms from trying to understand using the sedimentary deposits to build a framework for folks who are digging up dinosaurs. A dinosaur is really cool. A dinosaur bones are really cool in and of themselves. But I think it's it's even cooler if we can then say, okay, well, the sediments say that this dinosaur was living on the very distal part of a very organic, rich coastal plain. And there were river systems here, but, you know, a little bit further away, some of the other dinosaurs were living along deltas and there were soils here. And these are the type of soils. And then these are the type of plants that are associated with this coastal plain. And so you can build sort of this ecological framework and you can do this over time and see if things are changing over time. And with the marine systems, you also can look at the tracks and trails and even, the, of course, the continental system. So you look at footprints and you can look at different tracks and trails of critters, of soft-bodied critters that might be less likely to be preserved in the rock record. So I'm kinda, I kind of come from all these different directions, both an academic point of view and an applied point of view as, you know, here are all the characteristics. Here's what's really cool about the evolution of the Earth here at this time. But then, yeah, we can use these as analogs for reservoirs and do a better job of predicting where we might find oil and gas or water in the subsurface. Yeah, very cool. What first made you really keyed you in on wanting to study the seaway? Well, being very honest, the Bureau of Economic Geology was looking for someone to go out and take a look at these outcrops as analogs for reservoir systems. We wanted to broaden the outcrop-based analog program. And so one of the best places to do that is in the book clip. So I initially started just using these as outcrop analogs for reservoirs for people all around the world, you know. But then ultimately, I became very interested in the evolution of the seaway and the deposits of the seaway with respect to what kind of plants and animals are they preserving and what can they tell us about the evolution of the interior of North America? What are sort of the natural things that happen to this planet based on waxing and waning of glaciers, sea level fluctuations, tectonics, lithospheric loading and unloading? What does that look like when humans aren't around? Because if we want to understand if we're doing something to the planet and causing sea levels to rise or temperatures to change, you know, we have to know what the earth does when we're not on it. You know, we need that background information. 
Well, Pete, thanks so much for talking with Science Moab and walking us through the, some of the basics of the Seaway. It's, it's fascinating. I can't thank you enough for, for asking me to do this. Geology excites me. I hope you get a little bit more excited every time you hear someone talk about what this all means. Yeah, well said. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah and your support makes it possible.